Hello and welcome to Bob Dylan American Shakespeare, brought to you in conjunction with Crystal Pier Records by me, Rich Evans. And me, Mark Walsh. This is the podcast where we revisit each of Bob Dylan's officially released albums. We take a couple of weeks to listen back to them uh, and then we get together to have a good old chat about them. This time we're on episode 15, which is Before the Flood, released in June 1974. So, hello Rich. You will have noticed that we are calling this episode 15. I've folded to your peer pressure. And um, <laughs> the, uh, the Christmas special is now canonical, uh, whether we like it or not. Uh, that's the world we're living in. Exactly. I, I make no apologies for that. It just offended my sense of sort of sequential numbering, I suppose, to go any other way. So, yeah, I know that this is not his 15th record, but this is our 15th podcast. So there we go. Apologies. Well, but it gets worse, Rich, doesn't it? Because this is his 15th record because we missed out Dylan, right? So. We're all over the shop, basically. Yeah, really. I mean, really, I should have used that as justification, but um, I missed the trip there. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Well, okay. With that, uh, with that rather shambolic start, <laughs> let's continue as we mean to go on. So, yeah, as usual, we'll start off with a little uh, look back at our experiences with this record. So, Rich, how did you come to this album the first time around, and, and how have you found it this time? Yes, I mean, Before the Flood was one of those that, I'm pretty sure that I taped from the library as with so many Bob Dylan records in sort of back when I was a, a teenager. My library didn't have many of them. And so this was kind of a random one. I don't think I went into it with any great expectations when I listened to it as a kid. I remember really liking it though. And we were talking before we came on air, as it were, a little bit about how we're both a little bit down on it now, I think. And it hasn't aged as well as I might have liked. I suppose I haven't really listened to this for 20 odd years. But when I was a, when I was a teenager, I, I really did quite like it. And I've on sort of subsequently looking back on this, I've realised that I hadn't listened to the band before this. So in these days of streaming, that's probably quite difficult to imagine. But I mean, I came to the band through this record. And so I, it was a good sort of four or five years after this until I listened to the, the band, the band and music from the Big Pink and stuff like this. So I just thought that this, this was how they sounded. So the idea of them actually sounding like Frontiersmen was a, quite a revelation when it came along. But yeah, I listened to it an awful lot for probably about a year and a half. And this would have been, I think this would have been my first introduction to quite a lot of this material um, by, by Dylan as well, actually. I don't think I'd heard um, It's All Right, Ma, until I heard this, for example. So yeah, what about you, Mark? What's your, your history with Before the Flood? Well, just on what you were saying there, that's quite funny, isn't it? Because I agree that the bands really do sound very different from those famous early records that really made their reputation, I guess. But of course, as you were saying last week, before that, they'd been a, a proper rock and roll band, hadn't they? With the Hawks and supporting Dylan. So in a way, that frontier period was kind of an interregnum. But yeah, they, they certainly sound very different here, don't they? On my, my, my experience with this record, I definitely did listen to it back in the day. Um, I remember the cover very vividly and I, I probably had it on tape as well but it didn't make much of an impression on me at all so I think this time we're in a little bit of a, a role reversal from the last few episodes because I had very little experience certainly very little experience I can remember of listening to this record prior to the last month or so one thing I do remember is just being underwhelmed by the fact that there were so many songs I didn't know by this group that I didn't know which again sounds ridiculous now but certainly I hadn't been exposed to the band before either and for whatever reason this record didn't 
really kickstart an interest in them either, like you are. I came from, from a different route later on. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because I think one of the things about this, and, and again, it's, it's sort of time to get the pipe and slippers out and kind of play the, the old man card. But now you'd, you'd have been able to Google them, wouldn't you, the band? And I think that the, the only kind of reference I'd have had in any book at home would have been in one of those, you know, like 500 albums of all time or whatever. And they'd have been a footnote to Bob Dylan, really. I don't think that, I mean, I think that history has kind of revised its view on the band, really. I don't think in the kind of mid, like, well, mid nineties, I don't think many people of our age were, were that aware of them. I mean, what do you reckon, mate? Am I kind of making things up there? No, I think that's a really good point. Um, I was thinking about this over the last couple of months when we've been listening to Planet Waves as well, of course. And you're absolutely right. I suppose the band, they were sort of, they were sort of championed in a way, weren't they, by the kind of emerging underground press. Uh, Rolling Stone were very big on them, weren't they? And that sort of pushed them into a great degree of mainstream success around 1970. But it dissipated quite quickly, didn't it? Um, and of course, they, they broke up and never reformed as a, as a five-piece um, after the, the mid-70s. So they didn't have that kind of boost on the, the, the oldies circuit that, that a lot of these, their contemporaries did get. And so you're right, I think they sort of slipped out of public consciousness, certainly by the time of the early 90s when we were discovering this sort of stuff. Yeah, I think, because uh, 1976 was the last waltz, wasn't it? And I think that was the last time, certainly that Robbie Robertson and Levin Helm, I think that was the last time they played on stage together. And I think by the time we're talking about mid-90s, I think either Danko or Manuel might have died by then. Because I remember, distinctly remember saying to someone, in, I think I'd have been in sixth form, saying, oh, you know, I've, I've got this record, I've, I've been listening to it, it's got Bob Dylan and uh, there's this other group in it called The Band. And, and I remember my mate saying, yeah, what band? Like, that was about the <laughs> <laughs> So they were not well known, because he, he was not kind of someone that didn't know about music anyway. And it, it was just sort of, who the hell are they? Well, I had a similar experience quite a few years later, actually. I, I, was, uh, I was working and somebody, uh, a mutual acquaintance just said to me over a beer, um, is, it, is it right that, that your, your, one of your favourite bands is called The Band? <laughs> and um, just in this kind of tone of, of absolute incredulity. So yeah, they, they certainly had slipped out of the, the public eye by then. Uh, do you know what, Rich? I was, I was thinking about the sort of things that brought them back up into sort of my consciousness and one one of the things that that really brought home their greatness to me was that old BBC series. Do you remember? Um, I think it might have been called Great Albums or something like that, where they just go into the studio with the the master tapes and you, they'd be sitting with the engineer or yeah. a member of the group and they'd be isolating the the bass part and discussing how they came up with it and things like that. There's one of those on the band, isn't there? The, the second record, which is tremendous. Yes, I know the one that you mean and. It is fantastic, and and they really do seem like they're from a bygone era. I mean, not I'm not talking now about the uh, the frontiersman aspect of it, but just the they really do represent that idea of of when a, a band could almost be kind of plucked from uh, from obscurity, chucked into a studio, or have a few breaks with various people, and suddenly they're you know on the on the cover of Rolling Stone kind of thing. I mean, it, that yeah. stuff does not exist anymore. But they were. They had the musicality to back it up, obviously. I mean, they were a fantastic, fantastic band. But I suppose that 
you know, for what made them great, all of those, um, the, the sort of disparate personalities, the kind of band of brothers thing forged on the road and all of those kind of things, they were not without their problems, were they? I can't remember the, the novella by, oh God, I can't remember his name now. It's just called Music from Big Pink. Is brilliant and captures it fantastically. Um, he was actually on a podcast by uh, one of the, is it Rolling Bob podcasts, and he was talking a lot about this. And they were very troubled, weren't they? I mean, Robbie Robertson, perhaps slightly less so, in as much as I think he had far more of an idea of where he was going. But the other guys were, I just, I think they were a great, great bar band. And some people just aren't cut out for fame and fortune, are they really? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a very sad story, isn't it? All in all. But I, I guess the other side of it is that looking at their records, there was an element of diminishing returns. Part of it, obviously down to those personal circumstances that you talk about, but also the engine of, I guess, Robertson, Helm, Danko and Manuel being kind of equal participants in the creative process. It started to, to dissipate, didn't it, for, for whatever reason. And they've all got different accounts of why that was. But yeah, that kind of synergy that drives their best work was, was dropping off a little bit towards the end, wasn't it? It was. And I think they, they made the move to to Malibu they were hanging out in LA and by that stage Richard Manuel was a was a daytime drinker I think he he, dare I say it had it under control up to a a certain degree but he hadn't anymore and yeah you're right I mean their their later albums I mean I, I don't know their later albums really at all because I just what I've heard from them hasn't been very good even the even the supposedly good cuts um, I'm aware of, of course, this is probably turning into a podcast about a history of the band, which fascinating though it is, uh, we should probably get back to, I know they're on this record, but we should probably get back to the record and, and, and Dylan. But um, I think we'll probably have to explore the band a little bit more in a subsequent podcast. Dare I say it may be even moving slightly outside of the numerical format. I know that's going to make you break out in the cold sweat though. <laughs> Yeah, well, so we had this record, of course, following Hot on the Heels of Planet Waves. So ostensibly, I suppose, you could say this tour was in support of Planet Waves, but it didn't really pan out that way. So yeah, you had the tour in January and February 1974. They recorded, I think three of the concerts were recorded in full, I want to say. Certainly on the record that eventually came out, we've got Knock It On Heaven's Door comes from New York quite early on in the tour. And then the rest of it comes from the, the final concerts in California on the 13th and 14th of February. And it came out in June 1974. And it was, it was a big hit, wasn't it, Rich? It was, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, got, got to number eight in the UK and number three in the US. Yeah, I mean, it, and it was pretty well received, wasn't it? I mean, I, yes, I've researched bits and pieces about the, uh, the various concerts that this came from. Um, I will put it out there that we are not experts. Um, so it, if anyone wants to kind of counter our claims that a particular recording came from a different night on the uh, on the tour we will not stand in your way and we will absolutely stand corrected so um so yeah it was it was a big hit and um it was well received certainly um tom nolan in rolling stone gave it a very positive review no he didn't actually that's a lie uh, he gave it a mixed review it was robert christgau from cream magazine that gave it a, a very positive review there were a few kind of naysayers at the time but i mean generally it was it was pretty well received, wasn't it? I mean, it, and and like you say, it was it was successful. It sold a lot of copies. Yeah, and I think that Rolling Stone review was uh, is very interesting because, as you say, it is it is mixed. But I think the the kind of the final line is that they do, you know, that the the energy of it is carries it through, and it it works on that level, even if there are criticisms which are are made of it. And that's that's interesting because I think 
Dylan himself, speaking about the tour, had a line where he said something like, all anyone ever said about it was there was a lot of energy, but you know, what does that mean? It's, it's, it's kind of damning with faint praise. And there's the interesting comments that Dylan came out with and, and Levon as well said something along the lines of they felt as though they were playing the part of Bob Dylan and the band uh, rather than doing something real and vital. And I, I guess that's the, the angle of criticism that's always been associated with this album, isn't it? You know, we know the band can play. We know Bob Dylan's got some fantastic songs. But is this actually a record of, of that at its, at its essential, at its vital, at its living and breathing best? And a lot, for a lot of critics, perhaps it didn't quite hit the spot in that regard. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, dare I say it, I suppose it's a set of crowd pleasers, really, isn't it? I mean, you've, you've sort of got, you've got the band's greatest hits on here. And to a large extent, I suppose you've got a lot of Bob Dylan's greatest hits on here. And it's in terms of being kind of real and vital and in terms of pushing boundaries, it's not really doing that. And I agree that idea of almost Bob Dylan and the band covering themselves kind of thing. Um, it's quite when I say crowd places, it's quite funny, though, isn't it? Because here he's being criticised almost for or they're being criticised as well for sticking kind of too closely to the record. But you, you speak to anyone that, that's been to see Bob Dylan in the last hour of many years and they're like, oh, I wish he'd, he'd play stuff that actually <laughs> sounded like the record kind of thing. So the poor guy can't win, can he, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's the really interesting thing about it, isn't it? Because actually some people did say that he'd made too many changes from the records on this this album. I mean, there are little tweaks, aren't there? There's, there's changes to lyrics. There's, there's quite a lot of change in his kind of phrasing, I suppose, and, and the way he accentuates certain words almost at random. And it's quite unsettling um, if you're only familiar with the, the studio version. But, but you're right, compared to even what he would do uh, on the next big tour, the versions are a lot closer to the record. And certainly by the time we get into the 80s, um, <laughs> where the songs do become pretty unrecognizable, this is this is very uh, very mild in comparison. Yeah, yeah, th- yeah. There's no one that's going to be sat there, and then five minutes into a song, turn around to the person sitting next to him, and say, "Oh, it's he's playing this or he's playing <laughs> that." I mean, it's you've got that. I mean, it's a very sort of seventies thing, really. I think it started then the moment that an audience sort of recognised what was being played, they'd start to clap. I mean, it's on. Neil Young, Massey Hall is a prime example. The moment that, because of course it's just him and a guitar or him piano, the moment the audience recognises what it is, they then start applauding. And they're doing the same with Dylan here, but they're not having to wait five minutes into the record, in, into, into the song to do that. It's pretty instantaneous, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. Although there are some funny moments uh, that are quite jarring to the, to the modern ear, particularly on Just Like a Woman, when they wait, or at least let's say a minority of the crowd, wait until he actually sings just like a woman before they start applauding. <laughs> I kind of think if you didn't realise that was what the song was by then, I don't know, you probably got the wrong ticket. <laughs> well, there's, there's always, and, and uh, the whoopers in the audience are alive and kicking by 1974. <laughs> I think they were absent in the 60s, weren't they? But there's always some bastardy whoops too early kind of thing. In <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know what? The, the, the really striking thing about comparing this album to the free trade hall concert from 66 which of course didn't come out till decades later is the audience reaction isn't it obviously in the electric portion of the set you've got that very famous hostility in 66 whereas now everyone's that's what everyone's here to 
here, isn't it? That they want to hear that electric stuff, um, and they 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 whoop and holler all over it without any restraint. But in the acoustic sets, I mean, the the way you can you can just hear the silence while Dylan's getting himself set, and you know those, those kind of interminable periods where he's tuning and the crowd just sit patiently. It's a completely different atmosphere, isn't it, to what we get on this, where you've got the whole buzz, you've got the restlessness, you've got the applause when he walks on, when he starts strumming his guitar, and then, as you say, the kind of rush when they realise what song he's playing. Uh, all of that's completely absent on the, the 66 recordings. Yeah, and I suppose by... I mean, we've got to remember that by 1974, I know it's only eight years, but, I mean, that's quite... In fact, that's a, a lifetime in sort of popular music, particularly in this complete, like, incredibly fertile period. And, and the idea of touring, I mean, in 66, I don't know what was a big show in 66, probably playing Manchester at the Free Trade Hall or playing somewhere like the Royal Festival Hall or something like that. I mean, you're talking by, by the mid-70s, stadium tours, arena tours are are a thing, aren't they? And so the entire kind of experience and the expectation, and I suppose the sort of commercialization as well, people kind of know what they're getting, don't they? I mean, you'll you have people who, who are not only going to see Bob Dylan, but they'll be going to see Led Zeppelin. They'll be going to see Elton John. They'll be going to see the, the kind of, I suppose, the, the people that we would call dinosaur acts now. Whereas <laughs> that, that, that didn't happen in, in 66, did it? No, that's right. And famously, they used, uh, Dylan and the band used the same private jet as Elton John, didn't they, uh, to get them between the venues this time around. There was certainly no private jet in, in 66, I don't think. No. That's the thing, isn't it, I suppose, that the other, the other thing that's been held over this album's head over the years, that Dylan had obviously moved a record label for Planet Waves. Part of the motivation for that was that he didn't think he was getting a very good deal and he wanted to monetize his, his product as best as he could and uh, all power to his elbow for that. Then the next logical step is going on this tour, which, as I think we talked about last time, was a massive commercial proposition. As you've said, they were playing arenas. There's no theatres. Uh, it's, it's all sports halls. Playing a couple of shows a day, which... I was surprised to read again. I'd, I'd forgotten that that was a thing that people did in those days. But packing people in, two shows a day, 30 dates. And it was very much a commercial proposition in the kind of new rock and roll way. Yeah, I mean, that, that idea of, of two shows in a day is still a bit mind-blowing. It's like in, the, in, the, in that era and the Tour de France, they used to do two stages in a day sometimes kind of thing i mean i'm not making that kind of same analogy here but two shows a day i mean who who goes to the morning show and the, or the evening show <laughs> how, how does it work the the logistics of it have always kind of amazed me really it's like who's who's going to those shows but yeah i mean it, it was it's one of the things that worries me now about this is the idea that when i listened to it as a kid as a teenager I didn't think in cynical terms about much, really. But I, I wonder if there's, dare I say it, a little bit of a cold-hearted cash grab about this, just in terms of everyone else is out there playing big arenas. We better get out there as well and do the same. And, and of course, at this point in time, the idea of rock and roll or rock and rollers having careers that were going to be uh, decades long was still... I mean, it was hanging in the balance, wasn't it? No one knew, but in a couple of years' time, that might be it, really. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think that's one of the really interesting things about the audience reaction as well, because you've already mentioned how eight years is kind of like a lifetime in, in uh, popular culture, certainly in rock and roll culture, even today, I suppose, but certainly 
back in the, the late 60s, early 70s. It was a, it was a, a career, really, an eight-year spell. And you've got this quite, I suppose, almost almost queasy relationship going on where it's it, it's not quite clear from the audience reaction whether they are coming to this because they love the Bob Dylan that's in front of them now and the band as a unit and as a, as a, as a group that are performing for them right now, or whether actually it's already a kind of nostalgia for something that they feel has gone. I forget who it was now, but somebody somebody said that they thought people bought tickets for this tour, or at least the demand for tickets for this tour was so strong because it was a sense of people trying to do what they'd missed out on in the 60s and making up for it by trying to come to this concert. And you can sort of feel that, I think, in, in some of the audience reaction. I mean, particularly when you get to like a Rolling Stone and blowing in the wind at the end, you got this anthemic celebratory atmosphere, haven't you, with the crowd? You can actually hear the crowd singing along. And of course, that's almost entirely absent from the way those songs would have been received at the time, you know, blowing in the wind, the very serious, pertinent political statements about the movement as it was. And like a Rolling Stone, this um, this six pages of vomit, as Dylan himself described it. But they've now morphed into this kind of celebration, which ties into the idea that people are really coming along to recapture something rather than to experience something. I think that's really interesting. I'd not really considered that before but if yeah the idea that this is part of the kind of scampi in a basket kind of playing in the bowling alley sort of golden oldies nostalgia circuit but I suppose if you were you know if you're 20 years old in 20 or 21 years old in in like 63 when when Dylan is um first releasing his folk records I mean you're what you're you're in you're into your 30s by the time you're going to this concert you're almost reliving your youth aren't you so i think we we forget that because you look at it in a over the enormously long period that is his entire career but i mean for some people this would have been like oh do you remember when we used to listen to bob dylan oh great he's playing tonight well let's go and see him you know we can sing some of the old songs and it'll be a stroll down memory lane kind of thing which is very difficult to imagine if, if you weren't of that age at that time, isn't it? Yeah, and, and you can really imagine that chafing with Dylan, can't you? And yes. you could see how that would lead him on to what followed with these kind of even more, ever more radical rearrangements of the songs to try to, to make it fresh for himself. And well, <laughs> that's what happened, isn't it? It, it is, it is. And I think just uh, sort of going off the back of that as well, we've, we've mentioned before a lot of times the idea of, oh, is this going to be his last record? I mean, this could very easily have been his last tour. I mean, that's a lot of the time that people end up buying tickets for these things. Is oh, we better catch him before he retires sort of thing. Because how old was Dylan in 74? He'd have been, what, mid-30s himself? Yeah, yeah, he would have been, what, 33, 34, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Which, I mean, because entertainers had careers like footballers then, didn't Well, Stanley Matthews notwithstanding, but um, they, had, <laughs> they had careers, you know, you, above the age of 30, you were either down the end of a, a pier in a kind of, um, one of those kind of like light entertainment kind of review sort of things, or you were, you were retired and doing something else, weren't you really? Well, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, and, and, and that's very much how people feel about some of these legends today, isn't it? You're sort of you're always wondering how many more chances you're going to get to see people like Dylan. But as you say, even, even in the 70s, people were probably feeling the same way. There was no way for anyone to know that we'd still be sitting here talking about him almost 50 years later. 
that's it. I think if you'd have asked most people outside, well, they'd have wondered what a podcast was for starters, but never mind. <laughs> a, so anyway, mate, let's, uh, let's move on and talk about, I don't know, this is a live album, obviously. And, um, I know you've got a few thoughts on, on live albums in general, because, I mean, Dylan was not the first person to, to record a live album, let's, uh, let's remember. No, and it's an interesting concept anyway, really, isn't it? Because before the advent of multi-track recording and, uh, and studio gimmickry or wizardry, depending on your point of view, you could make the case that all albums are live albums in the sense that they, they capture a performance. And, of course, Dylan's records are largely like that aren't they they're they're often one or two takes capturing the best one but in terms of concert recordings i mean it's we're we're talking about 1974 here we've already had stuff like james brown at the apollo from the early 60s we talked about johnny cash around the nashville skyline album i mean his prison albums had been massively successful in the the late 60s and of course elvis with his his comeback shows and his uh his uh, hawaii record you know these things have been massively successful haven't they yeah that's right and um the sound quality on them actually if if we're going to go down that route also was 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 generally pretty good i mean the the other ones that that occurred to me you've got get your yaya's out by the rolling stones i can't remember when that was Uh, i think that was still in the 60s actually and then um bb king live at the regal when was that that might i think that might have been late 50s early 60s i forget offhand but i mean yeah so so it wasn't a new phenomenon was it no and it made me wonder why there hadn't been a bob dylan live album officially released before this uh, i mean obviously we know that there were these tremendously accomplished before uh, recordings of the, the 66 tour you see quite a lot of the material in don't look back from 65 that was perfectly adequately recorded that could have been put out as a live record and of course there's the thousands upon thousands of recordings from the early 60s that seem to circulate as bootlegs all over the place i don't know how many of those would have been owned by columbia of course but let's put it this way there's no shortage of pretty high quality live dylan material around that could have been packaged and released before now it's it's curious i suppose that this is the first time that we actually did get anything like that I agree. I mean, we were talking a little bit before we started recording this about how the kind of attitudes, I suppose, to recorded music, live recorded music, certainly were very different then. I think it was still seen as more disposable, more short term. And also this idea of kind of documenting a career kind of thing and and the idea that people will be pouring over things 40 50 years later thinking oh well actually that was the that was the third night at whatever theater it was or whatever auditorium i mean that that just didn't exist at the time did it but there there was a, a lot of really really high quality stuff out there and um and i'm not sure that this necessarily lives up to some of that yeah that's that's the yeah that's the thing isn't it well i mean are we are we ready to get into the, the nitty-gritty of this record now or um is yeah, there anything I, else we need to cover before we do I think, I mean, we've, we've obviously we're going to go with the old disclaimer that this is a, a podcast called Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare. And we try to make links between Bob Dylan's work and the immortal bard. And obviously, sometimes they're a bit tenuous. It's more in recognition of the fact of the enormous amount of influence and uh, the, link, the longevity of careers that both men have had, really. I think I'm just going to, if I may, if you'll indulge me, Mark, I will try and make a, a, a couple of very brief links here. I'm not entirely sure how well the, these will stand up. And as always, please feel free to comment and uh, dispute on Twitter. We'll be more than happy to... Uh, either defend or concede whatever points they may be. But um, the, the 
title itself really is all that I want to talk about, this idea of before the flood. There is a writer, novelist, in, who writes in Yiddish, Sholem Ash, who is actually the father of Moses Ash. And Moses Ash, of course, was quite instrumental in the folk scene of the early 1960s, which, of course, Dylan was a huge part. And there was a trilogy uh, called the Before the Flood trilogy, uh, which was published in the 1930s. So there are, of course, people that have suggested it, it kind of comes from that. There is the other theory, which I quite like, the idea that this is Dylan himself kind of conceding the fact that this is potentially here's the music before the inevitable flood of bootlegs. Okay, obviously bootlegs were doing a, 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 a fair old, uh, they were changing hands with regularity in the 1960s and the uh, and in the 1970s indeed. And then there's the Shakespearean theory, which comes from Julius Caesar, Act 4, Scene 3 of Julius Caesar. And Brutus says, and I'm going to read, if you'll uh, humour me here, there is a tide in the affairs of men, which taken at the flood, note the key word there being the flood, leads on to fortune. Omitted all the voyage of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a full sea are we now afloat. And obviously this is a metaphorical expression, but essentially saying a high tide is, is one of opportunity. And when I was listening to this as a teenager, obviously I listened to it through quite idealistic, naive eyes. We've mentioned already this idea of there being a not a cold-hearted cash grab aspects of this. I mean, he'd moved to Asylum Records in order to kind of monetize his career. Could it be that he's kind of seizing the opportunity as well with this tour to, to just kind of make some more money as well? I don't know. But what I would say is that that's about the best I can do in terms of Shakespearean links in this one. It has the word flood in Brutus's speech. It has the word flood in the title of this record. And very loosely speaking, it's this idea, I suppose. It's, it's, a, it's that move back to it being the music business, okay? The idea of, of, of making money from this. And I think Bob Dylan, remember, is, is not operating in a vacuum here. He's surrounded by people like Led Zepp. I mean, people like Bad Company and, and bands like that who are making absolute top dollar from touring endlessly through the US. And I think... He's probably conscious of this and, and maybe wants a bit of a piece of the pie. So anyway, I think I've probably uh, outdone myself in terms of uh, the, the idea of tenuous links. Well, I think you're definitely on the money with the the idea of the, the, the opportunity uh, angle. And there's a couple of things that come to mind. Uh, Richard Manuel later in his life, he, he, he had a, a very sad quote about, you know, millions of dollars going going outside his door and just... They're not. They're just not ever being the enough of a. I don't know. Um, the right moment to just reach out and grab it, as so many other acts have done, and that was one of the things that the band had failed failed to do, particularly in their later their later years. And um, on one of the versions of Idiot Wind, Dylan sings about imitators robbing him blind, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we we the, the the respect that we have for Dylan and the band as artists is immense, isn't it? And rightly so. But we should never forget they're human beings who've got to put bread on the table for their families and there's no doubt that that would have been a very very serious motivation for them at this time as you say people who i would say couldn't hold a candle to the band as musicians to dylan as an artist were making oodles of cash at this time and quite sensibly the six of them decided the time was right to go out and get a piece of a pie yeah i think that's very important who Oh, I can't remember his name. It's, I've gone blank. Who wrote uh, Song and Dance Man again? Oh, is it Michael Gray? 
Yes, I'm pretty sure it was him who said, you know, you mustn't mistake influence for kind of financial clout kind of thing, because there's no doubt that Dylan and the band were way cooler and way more talented than so many of their imitators, as you say. But he also makes the point that for every band like that, there's a, you know, some crap hair metal band that sold them, <laughs> sold them by gazillions of records in the, in the 80s kind of thing. And it is, it is that kind of that kind of sense that yeah you being being cool or being um being artistically admired doesn't necessarily pay the bills does it there's got to be as you say a way of putting bread on the table as well or just being good that's not enough is it you've got to reach out and grab it at some point yeah being the right time and place to grab it but yeah well i, I guess which if we can uh, move on then to the the, the kind of a meat of the record that's one of the things that's so striking about this album that we are talking about dylan and the band i mean Obviously, that's the, the billing. It's before the flood by Bob Dylan and the band. But from our point of view, looking at this in kind of a Dylan career perspective and thinking of it as Bob Dylan's first live album, actually, it's important to say that if anything, the band almost dominate. I mean, they have, what is it, nine, eight songs of their own where Dylan isn't even present. And then obviously they, they back Dylan singing his material. But I think their contribution to the record through acting as his backing band is just so tremendous that actually they tend to dominate would you would you say that that's a fair assessment yeah i i do i mean this is not just dylan saying giving him a nod and saying ego lads uh, have, a, have a couple of songs you can you can sort of hang on to my coattails and trade off my name no they are i mean equal billing if not uh, the fact that they're on everything i mean it's huge isn't it i mean i, I forget now thank you to the people who replied on twitter but um to clarify that Dylan did not come on to, he was not present on the stage when they were, when they were on stage doing their material. So essentially they, they are there. It's their stage for the night, isn't it? Bob Dylan is almost like the guest star that comes and goes. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, that's... Sorry, aside from when he's doing his solo acoustic stuff, but I mean, they're all the rest of the time, any ensemble playing, they're there the whole time, aren't they? Yes, and we'll get, we'll get on to this. I think it might have been an idea if they had been on during his <laughs> uh, solo acoustic sets. But, but yes, what, uh, poking around in the, the darker corners of the internet, as I tend to do when uh, uh, researching, in inverted commas, for this, um, this podcast, uh, I did come across some lovely stuff. And uh, one of them was a, a fellow whose name I'm going to mispronounce, um, who produced a 40-odd page document about Tour 74 and the various recordings. Um, I think it was it's Les Coquet, maybe. He's, he's available, uh, K-O-K-A-Y. If you search him up, you can find that pretty easily, I think. And he talks about how this record, Before the Flood, is actually a pretty poor representation of what it would have been like to be at one of these concerts in the first place, because it's true, you did have that kind of segmentation that you get on Before the Flood, where you'd have Dylan and the band, and then the band, and then... Dylan doing his acoustic stuff and then the finale. But actually, there's a whole other section which uh, gets omitted from the um, uh, the record. So after the band did their thing, Dylan had come back on and they'd do a few more songs and then it'd be Dylan's acoustic bit. Whereas on the record, we just get Dylan coming straight back on after the band have, uh, have done their first set. And apparently the um, placings of songs is quite idiosyncratic on Before the Flood. They, they weren't in the, the... The order that we get on Before the Flood is there's no resemblance to the sort of set listing we would have had in an actual concert. So quite, quite esoteric stuff, but still um, pretty interesting. And yeah, I mean... It, the the sets were were pretty hit heavy as you've as you've said already, Rich. At the start of the tour, they did they did cover a few of the uh, songs that they'd done together on on Planet Waves, 
but they largely disappeared uh, by the end of the tour. I think Forever Young would make an appearance, but other than that, it was pretty much the big hits. And I, I will say that where I, I, I will give some credit to the, um, uh, the sequences of Before the Flood is that you do get that impression of the greatest hits building up, don't you? The record starts with um, a bang with uh, that kind of reworking of most likely you'll go your way. Yeah. But then we get Lay Lady Lay, Rainy Day Women, Knocking on Heaven's Door. I mean, they are pretty much Bob Dylan's biggest hits to this point, aren't they? Yeah, I think... I actually think that the the sequencing works okay, especially given the constraints as there would have been of a it being a, a two sides of a double album. Because of course, this is actually the the kind of thing where, if you were releasing it in the modern era and you were streaming it, you could just put all of the stuff on there, kind of back to back, and there would be there'd be no issue with that. Whereas, of course, they they were constrained by this. But yes, I think. It, it does work quite well in terms of a sequence because it does, it builds and it builds and you've got that kind of ebb and flow and all of this, that and the other. I suppose the other thing as well is making a live album. I mean, I, again, I'm not sure of facts and figures here, but it would have been quite an expensive undertaking. You'd have had to have like the sound truck and all of this, that and the other. You'd have had to have all sorts of mixing desks and engineers and producers and people like that brought in for a few concerts. They wouldn't have had that necessarily every concert on the tour, would they? So I think they'd have just picked a few nights and said, okay, we're going to we're gonna record these ones and, and capture what we can. Yeah, yeah. I think, was it three nights that they had the whole paraphernalia decked out for? I'm not sure. But certainly, yes, they would have been picking from a a relatively limited subset of the the tour. It wouldn't have been a case of everything being recorded to the same high standards at every single venue on every single date. No, not at all. And um, so I think it does. It works fairly well as a sequence, doesn't it, really? My my biggest criticism, I'm going to put it out there, I love Garth Hudson, but I think that he plays too much on a lot of these songs. There you go. I've said it. I'm sorry, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's one of the criticisms, isn't it, that's been levelled at this record quite a lot i mean some people have been a lot more unkind than you've just been did i read somewhere it might even have just been on wikipedia but i think somebody said uh, that the sub that uh, the band bludgeoned dylan songs to death on this album and you can sort of see where where that line comes from can't you yeah you see i've i mean i'm, I'm going to defend them a little bit now because i mean i do love the band and i, I and I'm, i know i've been quite down on this record but i mean it, it still was it brings back good memories certainly and I think the issue with Garth Hudson is that he's using, he, it's almost like he's got a little bit overexcited with what were then fairly new kind of synth sounds and keyboard sounds and stuff like that. And some of these things age quite well. And some of them will sound like not very good kind of five or six years later. And then suddenly, 20 years down the line, kind of have almost a kitsch value kind of thing. Whereas I just don't, I just don't think that the sounds that he's picking, they sound still a little bit too. They sound a bit like they're off, off Doctor Who, some of them kind of thing. You know, that kind of, <laughs> it, 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 and it sounds terrible to say it, but I mean, they just they haven't aged very well, have they? Or is that me being massively unfair, Mark? What are you reckoning? No, I think that's right. I, I think they do work. At, at times, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm <laughs> but, not but, saying it's every song. Yeah, obviously. there are. I think no. Uh, the uh, what's the uh, the Ballad of a Thin Man, for example? I think he's very experimental on that one. There's like uh, pseudo horn sounds and things like that. that don't... <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> that's right. Well, I, I suppose 
you, you, I think you're right. And I think that also applies to a lot of Robbie's guitar playing. I think, for example, on a, like a Rolling Stone. No, no, not like a Rolling Stone. On um, Highway 61, I think he starts off quite restrained. And, it, and I, th- I think that's a great track, by the way. I think it really works. But I think the guitar really works as a supporting instrument in that old kind of George Harrison style uh, at the start. But then he just can't quite help himself uh, letting rip a little bit in the later verses. And yeah, you know, this is the era of uh, the guitar hero, isn't it? But uh, it, yeah, it goes yeah. a little bit overboard for my 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 taste. Yeah, and I think that that's that era of the guitar hero. It, it it's an important kind of part of their defence, really. Here, isn't it? Because on the '66 tour, with amplification being what it was, and pre Hendrix, really, you didn't necessarily. You'd have a guitar solo, but songs weren't dominated by guitar solos. Whereas mm. you move to the the early seventies and that you've got prog rock era as well as kind of heavy metal. And suddenly it's all kind of Jimmy Page and it's people like that who, and Jeff Beck who are just noodling really. I know that there's more to it than that, but I think that, that Robbie probably is being swept up by this, isn't it? And uh, isn't he, sorry. And uh, so as a result, I think he probably overplays certainly. And at times what, what made them so great in 66 was this idea of them operating as a backing band I think Dylan's maybe given them a bit too much rope in this instance. And so they're thinking, right, okay, let's, uh, <laughs> let's experiment. I mean, it's kind of a bit like, uh, we ha- well, um, we haven't had a, uh, a football analogy for, for a good few episodes. So I know, I've, I've, I've missed them. I've missed them. Come on. What have got? <laughs> it's kind of like uh, when you get, I don't know, uh, the Manchester United squad of um, 2008, 2009, and, um, or uh, I don't know, maybe the Manchester City squad today, and people say, oh, uh, the manager's got a real headache there. He's, uh, he's got so many superstars he could, he could field. Uh, he's going to have to leave somebody out. But it's, a nice, it's a nice headache to have. That's always the expression, isn't it? And it must have it been like that if you were in the band. I mean, you've got these guys who can all just be the absolute focal point of any given song. They can all, they're all such virtuosos in so many different ways. And it's just a question of perhaps when they all try and do it at the same time, it's a bit too much. Yes, absolutely. There must be some mathematical equation of like too many geniuses trying too hard at the same time. <laughs> doesn't, I think that, do you know what? I think it's that the, um, the synergy that you mentioned earlier kind of goes a bit because when they're at their best, there is that amazing synergy isn't there and it's almost like everything sits perfectly and they just make this monstrously hugely brilliant wonderful kind of sound whereas i think they if you it's almost like they i I think they they probably work better as when they're being really disciplined and and i remember that you know that documentary once were brothers about the band um Mm. they they used to talk about the fact that they didn't used to jam they were a song band. They weren't a jam band. And so they would kind of sit and they would play a song and then they would kind of play it again and they'd think about arrangements and this, that and the other. And all of those subtleties are what make them so great, of course. Whereas I think suddenly it's like, oh, hang on, it's 1974. We better have some guitar noodling. We better, I mean, yes, and prog rock bands like that were playing. like they, they, they and, and all that they ever used, well, I know that there would be plenty of Yes fans. I'm not one of them. Um, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was all about mer- musical virtuosity, wasn't it? And so, um, yes. and, and, and the, I think that they're, they're probably thinking, my goodness, we better, we better try some of that then. And, and I think that's where, where that discipline breaks down is where it all 
just becomes I, I suppose it, that's why it sounds a bit muddy in places really if you've got things that are fighting against each other rather than complementing each other that's where the because the spaces are so important aren't they and there's not mm. much space on this yeah i agree and it's, it's it's interesting to compare the sound on this live album with what we would get eventually on the 66 recordings because one of the things that i think really works well on the 74 is that the drums come through a lot clearer in the mix than they do on the 66 recordings and of course that's very um serendipitous i suppose because i think Levon is probably the star of this album for me. I mean, it's a cliche, but he does drive so many of these songs from the drum kit. And, well, we'll get onto his vocals later, I suppose, but they're absolutely outstanding, I think. But nevertheless, despite the fact you've got this more advanced recording technology, um, you've got these busier instrumental parts, I think somehow the density of the sound on the 66 recordings is is greater. You've You've got a heavier sound. You've got something that's almost like a wall of sound. And it, it gives it that kind of weight and that power that this record just never quite gets to. No, I think that's that's fair enough. I mean, I suppose we're probably in the era of, I don't know, what would they be recording to eight tracks now? Maybe maybe not 16, but they, you'd have had a few drum tracks would have, which would have been able to be mic'd up. Uh, but I agree. I just don't think it, it doesn't have the same clout, does it? I mean, mm. that 60, those 66 recordings just sound like they would steamroll or anything in their path. And, and that's, that's listening now. That's not even with the impact at the time, but that's listening from, a, from today. They've still got that urgency and that rawness. And I agree. I don't think this, this has it. I think this is more, maybe it's probably almost like this has been designed to entertain, whereas 66 was very much designed to be in your face and shocking you, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's unfair to compare in a way, isn't it? But that does play back to this idea of the whole thing being a little bit of a nostalgia festival with the, uh, uh, the corn dogs in a basket or whatever it was you were. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it would, it would be corn, corn dogs and, and deep fried butter and things like that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I think, you know, leaving the band aside for a moment, I think the other thing that obviously leaps out is Dylan's performances. And I, I think there's a lot going on here. I think the way that he does sort of rephrase his delivery, the way he has got a lot of, a lot of energy, um, despite what he himself said about that, you know, he really does give these songs plenty of welly, doesn't he? Quite a lot to like. Also, I think there's just a little bit lacking um, compared to the other versions of these songs that we know from other live performances, from the studio recordings, from other bootlegs. I just think it's a little bit less vital. And I think sometimes he's overcompensating when he, he's, he's really yelling out those, uh, those words. It's almost as though he's overcompensating with volume for, I don't know, something that's just missing in the essence of his delivery on a lot of these tracks. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? Because I always think that I, I really like Bob Dylan when I believe him, when I feel like he's trying his hardest. And that's why I, I was a defender of the Christmas album and things like that. And and I do think he's trying hard on these. I think he is trying to sell the songs. And so I'm not I've not got an issue with that. I just think that there's there is, I agree with what you're saying though. I think there's something for whatever reason, they just probably don't sound as as yeah, like you say, vital. There's a there's a vibrancy that's perhaps missing. I mean, let's I I think if we talk about some of the songs and just talk in terms of maybe high points and low points, it's too big an album to to focus on every single track, obviously. But I mean, I love 
the version of It's All Right, Ma. And this was my sort of introduction to it, I suppose. I'd never heard it previously. They do use it in Easy Rider, don't they, at one point, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, um, I think so. And so I think I would have heard that, but that might have been after this. And, of course, you've got the backdrop of Watergate. I mean, I forget which episode of this it was that we mentioned it on. It was when we, of course, did the, the original studio recording of this. But I think the backdrop drop of Watergate obviously gives it a massive resonance that even the President of the United States must one day have to stand naked. And then you've got the crowd reaction. It's very telling, isn't it? I mean, I think of the acoustic set, that one is definitely my highlight. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I'm a little bit down on the acoustic section generally. I think that we were just talking about his delivery and we talked earlier about how important the band are to this record. And I, I think it, that kind of style that he's got on this record, uh, the way he's kind of almost 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 rushing the songs, certainly trying to inject that energy and, and drive it forward and perhaps not quite getting to where he wants to get to, but as you say, giving it that effort. I think that really really works well enough with the band behind him but I, I i don't think it works on the the solo songs at all really i think you're right i think with it's all right more that kind of machine gun delivery particularly the reaction he gets to the president of the united states line that that's enough it carries it and it's and and the fact that he delivers those lyrics in such a staccato rapid fire way is still dazzling compared to any other version that we've we've got but don't think twice and just like a woman I, they, they leave me cold to be honest and I was, I was trying to get my head around it I think there's a, there's a few things going on really so the, the first thing is the way that he does approach them the way he's almost kind of ahead of himself rushing them slightly the way he's kind of flat strumming them it means that they lose all of the delicacy that they have in their original studio recordings and in their live recordings elsewhere and I think they suffer for that it, it, they, they don't necessarily have to suffer for that but, you know, I think, for example, of the version of Simple Twist of Fate that you put on, uh, that got released on the bootleg series from the um, Rolling Thunder tour. There's a similar thing going on there, but there's something about his delivery which compensates for the, the loss of the delicacy of the original recording. I don't think that happens here with Don't Think Twice or Just Like a Woman. It's They, they are stripped away of this kind of almost, um, I don't know, ethereal beauty that they have in their studio recordings. And you're left with quite nakedly unpleasant songs actually and i think in the case of don't think twice that's compounded by the fact that the sort of world weary young man that sings this on freewheeling or on the whitmark demos is such a key part of the emotional core of that song the song works because it's a young heartbroken man delivering it with this kind of exhausted you know overly emotional attitude to have a fellow in his mid-30s roaring out the same lyric it, it it doesn't work. I think it just becomes a nasty song and it doesn't do anything for me. No, it's, uh, it's where I'm with that. It's a blunt instrument, isn't it? The uh, This song um, on this. And I think the other, th and yeah, loss of subtlety aside, I can't imagine if anyone was in a bar and they heard someone play this song for the first time, they heard it played like that. I can't imagine that many people would have thought, wow, this is an instant classic. Whereas I think the... Uh, beauty of the original is so kind of breathtaking that uh, that I think it, you'd be hard pushed not to think the reverse in that instance. I agree and uh, just uh, just to finish off this little uh, tirade from me um, there's a line in the Rolling Stone review where they took they describe just like a woman as an ungainly thing and I, I like that I think it's a it's a fair summation of where we get to unfortunately. 
Yeah, that, that probably about nails it. I mean, uh, let's let's talk a little bit then, because I mean, in terms of high points, I think Knocking on Heaven's Door is great. I think that it's really telling how it's become a very popular live number. I mean, they're, they're not faking, are they? The, the enthusiastic response when they realise what he's playing here. It's a standout track for me. I think the band are very muscular, perfect backing, really. Like it or loathe it, Mark? What are you reckoning? Oh, definitely like it. Yeah, I mean, I, we, when we talked about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, I was a little bit down on this song. And I still think the chorus is just a little bit too banal to really lift this up to the level of an absolute stone cold Bob Dylan classic. But that's a very high bar and it works fantastically well in this setting. And as you say, you could see why so many people have picked it up and used it as a, as a stadium rock standard because it just does work so perfectly. I'd also say the opening track works really well for similar reasons. You've got a very strong vocal and the way the band drive it is is fantastic. Yeah, totally agree. And then I think, I mean, I actually think that the, the first lot of the band's set is pretty strong anyway. I mean, up, 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 uh, up on Cripple Creek, very, very good. Uh, the Night They Drove Old Dixie Downs, brilliant. I love that as a live version. I mean, I love the song anyway, but I think it really works in this instance. I Shall Be Released, I do love the song. I think that, unfortunately, it's Richard Manuel singing it, isn't it? And uh, yeah, I don't know. Is Are we starting to see the cracks appearing? I mean, like his, his vocal style here sounds achingly beautiful, but almost because you're suffering along with him kind of thing, rather than uh, the sort of high purity of the uh, the recorded version. I might be That's wrong. A, what, what are you no, I, I, think, I think you're right. I think it's a really gorgeous performance, but you're right, it's kind of tempered or I suppose even accentuated by that feeling and it's it's quite heartbreaking to go back and listen to the original after yeah I mean you're right that's that's what was going on for him at that time and by the time of the last waltz and the the performances around then he he stopped singing this song didn't he because he he couldn't he couldn't hit hit the notes at all yeah that's right and I think you've got that fragility here which probably a year earlier he'd have been able to sing it in a way that would have been less kind of strained the I love the version of the weight as well difficult to think of a bad version of this really that the band <laughs> never heard because it, it's such an amazing song isn't it and uh, and this is this is fantastic i mean i again this is my first uh, introduction to any of these songs was on this record um by the band that is and i think it's really interesting that when i first heard the weight i actually thought it was a bit lightweight if you'll is that a pun or just a terribly <laughs> on the clumsy sentence um, because we'll call it a pun. I will go that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, because it was because it was a bit slower, and because it sort of lacked the, uh, the the kind of drive and the intensity. But I mean, I mean, obviously the the version on the the last waltz is incredible with the the staple singers uh, on it and and virtually everyone else as well actually. But but this is this is really good, isn't it? The version of the weight. Yeah, it is. And uh, going back to what you said earlier, I think uh, those. Yeah, those performances of Upon Cripple Creek and, um, oh, what was it? What's the other one that Levon sings? Uh, uh, Dixie. Dixie, yeah, Dixie. Those and the way really showcase him in absolutely superb voice, I think. Uh, yeah, I think he, I think he, as I say, I think he really uh, is the star of the show here. And the version of The Weight is fantastic. The, the other one that I really like on here from the band is um, uh, When You Awake. I've always liked that. The album version of that. It's, uh, it's Richard's song, isn't it? But Danko sings it, I think. I think and sings that one, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's fantastic. 
Um, and I love the fact that it doesn't fade out over the last couple of lines, which uh, always makes me kind of sad on the album, but um, we get to hear them here. Well, it's just, I mean, you're reminded, aren't you, that you had arguably three of the great singers of Americana, certainly in the same band. I mean, it's just astonishing. And yeah, I absolutely agree. Levin Helm is, is, is something else on this, isn't he? Okay, let's come back to the last four and talk about them in a minute. Um, let's talk about some low points. I mean, I already mentioned Ballad of Thin Man, largely thanks to uh, to kind of experimental keyboard sounds. Oh, Endless Highway. I think Endless Highway is an example of the band, a later album after they kind of lost their mojo a little bit. And The Shape I'm In as well. Neither of those do do it for me, Mark. About what are you th- your thoughts on those? Yeah, I mean, The Shape I'm In, I, I kind of like... Uh, the album version. I don't think this is a particularly great version of it. Endless Highway, I've never really gotten along with. It's just okay. But yeah, for me, I think the, the low point really is just like a woman. I don't, I just, as I mentioned, I think it doesn't do a lot for me. Other than that, though, the only song that Dylan and the band do together that I, I don't really get along with is uh, It Ain't Me, Babe. And I, again, I, I appreciate it's got a lot of energy, but I kind of feel like in those first six songs, we, we, we sort of get the idea that Dylan's going to be going with this, you know, full throttle. And it's great on most likely you go your way and I'll go mine. Yeah. And it's diminishing returns as we go along. And by the time we get to it, it ain't me, babe. And it still ain't me, babe. It just, just leaves me a bit cold. Yeah, it's, I mean, I suppose that the thing is, there's a lot of songs on this as a, as a live set, really. And considering the fairly lukewarm reaction this has generally had and, and the way that the critics seem to kind of revel in picking it apart. I think it, it's one of these odd oddities really, because yes, there are, there, there are a couple of pretty dreadful songs on this, but by and large, it's difficult to kind of put your finger on what makes it bad. And so I don't think it's a bad record by any means, but there's not, and there are some great performances, but I think there's, a, there's perhaps just a bit of mediocrity on this, which kind of prevails. And I think that's what, it, it just doesn't kind of hit the solar plexus in the way that arguably, I mean, I, I really love the, uh, the Hard Rain live album, for example. I think that has a far more emotional reaction in the listener than this one does. I think that's right. And certainly this isn't a bad album by any stretch of the imagination. But I think you're right. There's just that little, almost indefinable thing that it doesn't quite hit you, as you say. But there's, there's enough on there that does get close to it. And I, I think you've, you've probably, you probably feel that way about the last four tracks, don't you, Rich? Yeah, I think so. I mean, what have we got? We've got um, All Along the Watchtower, which is great. You can tell the, uh, the influence that Hendrix's version has had on the band and Dylan by this stage in time, of course. Highway 61, I do like this. This this I think is great, actually, because it is like it's that sort of shuffle kind of arrangement, isn't it, with the sort of freight train whistle guitar and all of that. I think that works extremely well. Uh, like a Rolling Stone, I mean, it it's breakneck speed, isn't it? But it, it, it works very, very well. And then Blowing in the Wind, I, suppose, I mean, it, it kind of harks back almost to those folk review things when everyone would join each other on stage and they'd all have a big sort of sing song of whatever was the, the kind of most euphoric anthem I suppose and so I think it works I think it works very well as a kind of closing suite of songs almost and uh, yeah it, it certainly ends with a, with more of a bang than a whimper 
Definitely, yeah. I think the, that last uh, little run, and again, credit to the sequences, it, it works really a lot better. They're a lot, it's a lot stronger than the, the, the opening of the record as a, as a, little, as a little run of a, of a mini set. And I, I agree, uh, Like a Rolling Stone is a, is a great version of a great song. I'm particularly pleased that it sort of cleanses the mind of the version that we had on Self-Portrait, which uh, is <laughs> the last one we come across. And the less said about that, the better. Yeah. Um, but uh, the other thing I love about uh, this is that you can actually hear the piano. And that's one of the things that you tend to struggle with on all live albums, I suppose. Particularly for most of this record, you just don't hear the piano, but it comes through really nicely. That kind of beautiful, restrained start uh, before the main riff kicks in and then the little trills you get throughout lovely lovely stuff to hear yeah i agree um we're probably mate on about last thoughts i think uh, at, at this at this moment in time unless there's anything else that you you want to add no i think we're we're good there i mean yeah if i'm going to go in for last thoughts i think it's important to say that I, I i've enjoyed this i enjoyed it a lot more than i did when i first heard it years ago probably because i know who the band are which is kind of a prerequisite <laughs> to, to enjoy this but yes it is flawed it doesn't doesn't hit the spot in the way that we know these musicians can and that's that's something that is always going to be fairly leveled at it i think but the one thing i did think when i was trying to sum up how i feel about this album is that there's definitely enough on here that i would like to hear the actual concerts i'd like to go back and listen to them in their kind of original unresequenced form and of course we haven't got that officially at the moment we haven't the bootleg series hasn't covered that period of dylan's career i don't actually know if it can because of course he wasn't on columbia at the time i don't know if that makes any difference or not if if anyone out there listening can Set me straight on Twitter as to whether we could ever expect a bootleg series that covers Planet Waves and Tour 74. I'd love to know because I really would like to hear uh, a lot more from this. And I guess that's a good sign, isn't it? If I'm thinking that I want to hear more, this can't be a bad album at all. No, I think you're absolutely right with that. What would I suggest? I mean, my final thoughts are, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the sound quality on this has definitely been surpassed by kind of subsequent releases. But that doesn't detract from the fact it's very, very interesting as a record. And I'd, I would, I would definitely like to hear more of this tour. My theory is one that kind of concerns time, really, or perception, I suppose, which sounds very philosophical. But um, I, for me, I think that this weirdly sounded much more acceptable and palatable in the mid-1990s than it, it's almost like it's aged a lot more in the last kind of 20 five years than it had done in the sort of period between release and when I was first listening to it. I don't know whether that's me that's changed or whether it's just that music in general kind of you, you shift or, or, or depends on what's kind of prevalent around you, but it sounds a lot more dated now in a way that it didn't when I first listened to it, I think is what I'm trying to say. Does that make sense? I think it does. I mean, you, I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about the uh, the noodling and the, the influence of prog rock. In the 90s, a lot of that was being swept away, but we were still very much at the tail end of the kind of hair metal, guitar god, stadium tour yeah. sort of thing, weren't we? Yeah. We're, we're long past that now. <laughs> I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, shall we leave that to the listener to decide? Thank you very much indeed, as always, for joining us. Please post any questions or suggestions that you may have on Twitter. You can find us by searching at Dylan American. 
And please do join us next time when we'll be picking up with a record, which I'm pretty sure we both have listened to before, the little known Blood on the Tracks. Thank you.